For the last 12 days, we've traveled the Indian Ocean with no sight of land or anyone else for that matter. And then we stopped. The spot looks exactly the same as everything else has for the past nearly two weeks. But of course it isn't. In fact, nothing's been the same this entire time. We've been traversing mountains and valleys and plains, vast and intricate landscapes that are just below a few kilometers of water. We stopped directly above one mountain in particular, Atlantis Bank, which I'm proud to say is the site of a brand new hole in the bottom of the sea. So lots has happened on the Joydee's resolution since our last episode. Today, I'll get you up to speed and tell the story of one of the most fundamental ideas of modern earth science that very few people believed for a very long time. Okay, so the area we're looking at is um, uh, next to the Southwest Indian Ridge, which is a mid-ocean ridge, one of the 60,000 kilometer long uh, chain of underwater volcanoes that forms ocean crust by seafloor spreading. That's co-chief scientist Chris McLeod. Ocean crust forms two-thirds of the surface of the planet is formed by seafloor spreading uh, at mid-ocean ridges. Mid-ocean ridges are long chains of underwater volcanoes which are being pulled apart constantly as the plates move uh, and new crust is being created there. The rates at which that occurs vary across the planet from a centimetre or so per year through to a maximum of about 16 centimetres per year. So just to put this in perspective, the fastest of these mid-ocean ridges is about the speed that your toenails grow. The fastest spreading rates in the Pacific, along the East Pacific rise, and amongst the slowest rates are uh, the Arctic um, north of Iceland and also the Southwest Indian ridge where we're going to. The precise place spreads at about 1.4 centimetres per year, so it's representative of what happens at the slowest uh, rate at which this happens. We've come to realise in the last few decades that the processes of formation of the ocean crust differ quite substantially with the rate of spreading, the amount of magma that's produced and so on to, to fill the gap. This understanding of how ocean crust is formed along these ridges is surprisingly recent. Here's our other co-chief scientist, Henry Dick. When you look at the margins of the continents, and every schoolboy used to look at the edges of the continents, they'd sit in geography, and they'd look at Africa, and they'd look at South America, and they'd look at North America and say, teacher, teacher, did those fit together once? Well, before plate tectonics, the teacher would laugh at you and say you were, get off it. After plate tectonics, they all realized, well, yes, they once upon a time did fit together in a supercontinent. One man who looked at these coastlines and thought they should go together was a German scientist by the name of Alfred Wagner. In fact, in 1915, he published The Origin, the origin of Continents, of continents and, oceans. And, oceans. and Oceans. In it, he postulated that the continents we see today were once all joined together as a single landmass. Now, he was going on a little more than just fitting coastlines together. There were also observations of similar fossils on opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean, and the strange observation of fossilized marine creatures high above sea level in mountain ranges that needed explaining. In Wagner's time, a couple of the more popular theories to explain these 
were that there used to be these large land bridges across the Atlantic, and that mountain ranges were a result of the earth cooling and contracting over time, kind of like a grape becomes a raisin. So, Wagner proposes this new idea, that the continents just drifted away from one another, leaving an ocean in the middle. And pretty much nobody buys it. A few scientists support him, but overall the theory isn't widely accepted, and Wagner sadly dies on an expedition to Greenland in 1930. Part of the problem with this is if you propose a theory like this, you might be able to show evidence that it has happened, as Wagner did, but you also need to propose a mechanism for exactly how it happens. At the time, we just didn't know enough about the structure of the Earth to comprehend that the upper crust could move over top of the mantle. It took 40 years after Wagner's death for the scientific community to realize that the continents do indeed drift, and 175 million years ago, they formed a supercontinent named Pangaea. I mean, when I entered college, plate tectonics was considered to be a wild theory by the overwhelming majority of geologists in the world. And when I graduated in 1969, it was accepted theory, and it revolutionized earth sciences. There were a few things that caused this transition. We had been gaining a better picture of what the seafloor looked like for decades, and magnetic patterns provided key clues. We'll talk about these specifically in a future episode. But the definitive proof came in 1968, when the predecessor to the Joides Resolution, the Glomar Challenger, drilled eight sites in the South Atlantic on either side of the Mid-Ocean Ridge. This was right between where the coastlines of South America and Africa look like they fit together so well. The scientists on board identified tiny fossilized plankton in the lowermost sediments. This was right above the basalt that makes up the oceanic crust. By identifying the fossils, they were able to constrain the age of the rock below them, and they found that the crust furthest away from the mid-ocean ridge was the oldest, and the crust closest to the ridge was the youngest. This demonstrated that the ridge was the site of crust formation. Today, less than 50 years later, plate tectonics is one of the fundamental principles of Earth science, and it explains countless observations. There are subduction zones where oceanic plates are sinking and being destroyed beneath continents. These form the deepest parts of the ocean, like the Mariana Trench. There are continental collisions that form the highest mountains in the world, like the Himalayas after India collided into Asia. It's this process that lifts up marine fossils high above sea level and puzzled geologists for so long. We can even see the birth of a new ocean in the East African Rift, a continent literally being torn in two. The story of the theory of plate tectonics is an illustration of how relatively young the fields of earth science and oceanography are. Many of those who figured out the fundamental principles are still alive today. And I had a secret desire to somehow make a contribution to plate tectonic theory with all the greats. But the action was basically over by 1972. The basic tenets, the basic ideas of plate tectonics were laid out and the rest of us poor suckers who got out of graduate school were going to fill in the details. Henry has made numerous contributions to plate tectonics, including discovering a whole new type of plate boundary. But that's a story for another time.
All right, back to the expedition at hand. As we approached Atlantis Bank, the boat slowed down and came to a stop. But then we did something that not a lot of other boats can do. That's the sound of 10 massive thrusters descending into the water. The Joides resolution can stay in one spot without an anchor. This is called dynamic positioning, or DP. Here's Operations Superintendent Steve Midgley. So, what is a DP system? Well, think of this as the brain controlling everything when we're on site. Not the drilling, but, but where the vessel is and where the vessel should be. And it controls, it has inputs into it saying, hey, I'm here. And it has outputs going to all the propulsion systems saying, I need to go over there. So it's controlling 10 thrusters, 12 thrusters, 10 retractable and two, two uh, fixed thrusters. We have various inputs into the system. We have a wind input. We have a, a beacon input. So we have an acoustic beacon that we will put on the seafloor and it sends a signal up which we will listen to with our five hydrophones and our five hydrophones are along the length of the ship and those those hydrophones will listen to the beacon and they'll triangulate where the ship is in relative to the beacon we have two gps units separate gps units that also provide input into the system so once we're in dp mode we need to find a precise spot to drill our hole when we arrive on site, uh, the first thing we will do is to lower a camera down to the seafloor to check exactly the location that we have identified as suitable. Uh, we do this by um, assembling some drill pipe uh, to within sight of the bottom. Um, at the same time as we do that, we lower the um, a camera down around the drill pipe on a special frame. And so when the bottom comes into view, uh, we, we can then move the ship around slowly uh, over the seafloor until we can pick the exact spot we think is suitable to put the drill uh, to, to, to drill into. We want to look for somewhere that is flat um, and doesn't have any sediment on it so we know exactly what we're getting at. Uh, the area of Atlantis Bank, the broad survey area, we've previously uh, found to be um, a bare pavement of rock um, where um, it's flat, it's uh, very hard it's had all of the soft, uh, soft sediment. It had any broken rocks removed from it, eroded away from there. So we have very hard rock at the surface, which is ideal kind of rock to drill into. But to get st a hole started in those conditions is requires some preparation. Once the spot is found, an intricate series of steps was initiated to begin the hole. First, a metal frame with a drill inside of it was lowered down to the seafloor. Now, this is connected to the ship by a long pipe, but the drill inside the frame is only there to get us started. Next, the ship pumps mud down this pipe to power the drill, and this structure bores itself about 10 meters into the seafloor. Next, a huge funnel is welded together on the ship around the drill pipe, and it's dropped on top of the structure and latches in place. It was actually super fun to watch. This funnel is called a re-entry cone. And when we're trying to thread the ship's drill into the hole, what it does is it widens the target. Still, the entire operation of re-entering that hole with the ship's drill is super impressive. 
If you scale the whole thing down, it's the equivalent of trying to hit the inner bullseye of a dartboard. If everything goes well, we'll probably have a dozen re-entries this cruise, maybe more. Uh, and to do a re-entry, we have to coordinate the, the drill floor, DP, and the camera system all together in order to re successfully re-enter the hole. The DEP operator will be using the camera system to guide him um, so that we get, we get positioned over the re-entry cone. And then when we're in position, the driller will lower the, will lower the drill string down and will re-enter the hole. Once the funnel's in place, a device is dropped through the drill pipe to release that seafloor drill, which is then hauled back up, leaving a funnel and about a 10 meter hole on the seafloor. Amazingly, this intricate process went off virtually without a hitch. Hear that? That's the sound of us drilling. We started slowly, about a meter per hour, to make sure the top of the hole is structurally sound. But then, after a few hours... That's the announcement of the very first samples of Expedition 360. Now it's time for the scientists to get to work. I want to end this week's episode with a brief story from co-chief scientist Henry Dick. Henry has many stories, and you've already heard a couple. This one didn't quite fit into any scientific explanations, but it's a really interesting illustration of how unexpected situations can arise during these expeditions. It speaks to the challenges of medical care in extremely remote locations, and it ends with a pretty significant scientific discovery. Our story starts in Cape Town, South Africa in the year 2000. Here's Henry. So off we sailed. And we arrived and we went down. And this was quite a dramatic cruise because on the way down, one of the crew members had had an accident on the dock loading the ship and had banged his head and gotten a concussion. But he was cleared to go on board. So we're ste we steamed down to the, to the site where we started our surveying. As we arrived down there, the captain sees an iceberg. And all of a sudden, we can only map the seafloor at half the normal speed. Well, everything at sea is time. Time is money, and if you, if, you, if you have to do things more slowly, you lose time, you get to do less. That was the first setback. Then we started sampling the ridge in this section, and the crew member went into a coma, and they had to keep him alive by artificial respiration. So the scientists and the crew alternated time by hand, manually keeping this guy breathing. And we steamed back rapidly to Cape Town. And as we approached Cape Town, as soon as we got into helicopter range, a helicopter arrived above us and they dropped down a basket and a crew member and they put this guy in the basket and lifted him into the helicopter and flew him back to the hospital in Cape Town, where alas, he was brain dead. So this was a huge tragedy. His name was Joseph Mays, and in fact, we discovered a very unusual seamount, or actually volcano in the middle of the Rift Valley where we were working that we named after him to honor both him and all the crew members who've devoted their careers to ocean research, but never appear as names in the papers, uh, you know, as authors or anything. They go out to sea, they do their job, they work, they make 
what we want to do possible, and they're often extremely dedicated. And so we honored him, but also all the crew members on the ship by naming the Seamount Joseph May Seamount. So we go back. We've gone the way down, the ship engines, one of them breaks. So we're floating in the middle of the South Atlantic in the world's roughest oceans without engines. And the engineers finally sort of piece this back together. So we go back to Cape Town. And each time we went there as the chief scientist, I felt obligated to take everybody in the science party out to dinner. So I'm now taking them out to dinner for the third time because, of course, I took them out when they arrived. I took them out when we came back because everybody was depressed. Now I'm taking them out for the third time. I come back from dinner. I go up to my cabin, and somebody has climbed over the side of the ship, broken into my cabin, and stolen my computer with the cruise report on it. So I had to rush off the ship, buy a new computer, and start rewriting the cruise report. So we sail back down. And we sample, and we sample, and we sample, and we've mapped this oblique spreader. And as I had hoped, we we're pulling up all this mantle rock. This is great. Mantle rock everywhere. And in fact, I'm beginning to realize that we have a spreading center that is not spreading volcanic crust. It's spreading, the earth is cracking open and spreading mantle directly onto the seafloor. And this is the first time anybody had ever seen an ocean ridge that did this, where it was spreading so slowly that as the mantle rose, it was cooling too fast to melt. And so it just rose up and spread apart with the mantle coming on the seafloor directly. And this is a profound change because this is how we have learned by following up on the discovery that not all of the earth has crust on it, that large sections do not. Follow Expedition 360 in real time at joidesresolution.org. That's J-O-I-D-E-S resolution.org. As well as on Facebook at facebook.com slash joidesresolution or on Twitter at the JR. I'm collecting questions for the scientists on board. Head over to the website to send us an email or ask us on Twitter or Facebook. A Hole in the Bottom of the Sea is supported by the European Consortium for Ocean Research Drilling's Scientific Support and Advisory Committee, as well as the International Ocean Discovery Program, the National Science Foundation, and the U.S. Science Support Program. Today's episode was produced and edited by myself with support from Sharon Cooper. You can follow me on Twitter at Lucas Cavanaugh or visit my website lucas.fyi. The music used in this episode is by Bureaucratic. Visit him on the web at bureaucratic.bandcamp.com. Bureaucratic.